Hey everyone, today on the Far Off Sounds podcast, we've got our, our old friend Rebecca Mehe on the show with us today. Uh, she's a longtime friend of the Far Off Sounds show. Um, you know, we do make uh, documentaries, actually, uh, videos. Um, that was actually what we've been doing for most of the time, and we seem to be passing the time along uh, by uh, producing podcasts at the moment. Anyway, that's besides the point. Longtime friend of the show. Uh, it was great to catch up. We wanted to hear more about what she's up to, what life's like in Leeds, uh, you know, the state of the DIY scene in the in the wake of coronavirus, and then generally kind of get some biographical uh, history from her and how she how she came to uh, producing whacked out electronic music uh, and and generally uh, being a, a supporter and and. Uh, UK-based bohemian of the uh, experimental persuasion. Um, get into some cool stuff like uh, uh, how the hell does anyone function in this age of coronavirus and uh, what kind of things have changed in the wake of, of this new reality where air is dangerous inside. Uh, you know, I, I, I've, there's some people very dear to me who are uh, suffering from the consequences of long COVID. And we actually, uh, uh, we find out that Rebecca is, is suffering as well. And, and so we kind of talk about energy management and, you know, how many stairs can we go up today? Um, so it's, it's a good conversation. Dig into a lot of like interesting, uh, oh my God, like you were in the same room as this person and you didn't know who they were kind of stuff like that. And uh, it's, it's a fun one. So I uh, hope you like it and uh, I'll stop blabbering. Uh, let's get into it. Thanks. I think it's recording. Cool. All it right. says it's recording, so we we could we could uh, you know we could do some live polls. We could stream. We could whiteboard. We can integrate Miro. Take a breakout room. I don't know how to use this stuff. Why? You can report um, them as well. So yeah, yeah. doing that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, like I don't know. But we've we've been going through some different like podcasting softwares like Zencaster and then I've heard of this other one that's like platform rise or something. I don't know. But uh okay. we can't really figure it out. We can't crack the code as to maybe like there's no code to crack though, Nick. <laughs> like maybe it's just like it, you just keep switching up. Maybe. Who knows? It's 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 like we've been advised that like the best way to just podcast is to every everyone record on their own zoom recorder with a high quality microphone and then everyone sends their files in and then you sync them up but it's like uh that's a lot to ask of a lot of people like i i don't know do you have a zoom recorder at, at handy i do actually have a zoom h2n but you know that's just me yeah that is just i mean there's <laughs> i mean i don't know you're you're in the minority here of of guests who have sophisticated audio recording equipment i'd say yeah, it's um, not uh, for the the 
whatever the four is like it's a, it's a h2n is what I'm gonna say. <laughs> yeah those are good that's a classic that's a classic stereo microphone and zoom recorder it's it's a good one yeah it's 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 solid the only thing i can say is that i always forget to uh you know clear memory and i've hit record on it and then like when i've come back after playing a set and it's like memory full yeah like <laughs> still do that. gotta love it yeah it oh it didn't record is a is a very common oh, yeah. so i think fun. like we were cursed with like pure rave recording stuff for many years like we would try and record uh, hours on end or like live gigs or this and then i'd say more than half the time like it just it just didn't work it so maybe it's a blessing nick like maybe yeah yeah no one should have heard that no one <laughs> it was not worth sharing and yeah. uh well like the deletion of or like the lack of recording or the lack of a of a of a document to say this thing happened is the story of my life next so i'm just like you know mm -hmm. whether that's like three years worth of filming or all the writing you've ever written like that you know that i'm just like yeah i've i've lived that many times and grieved so i'm just like yeah gotta be in the moment God, I, <laughs> I guess so <laughs> yeah i mean like when you're when you're recording an album uh for a label or something yeah, yeah it's great to be in the moment but if you don't have like the record if you like didn't you record like you we've been like recording you, well, then where's the audience nick so if right. you <laughs> <laughs> we've like recorded like mixes We've like got together, recorded a mix, and oh, and like oh, we were gonna send it out, and like yeah. we just we just like didn't record. I don't know. We have that sucks. this is what happens when you have like one like an extremely like fragile, weird uh, electronic music setup that's like yeah. you know it's like broken records and broken turntables and fragmented this and that. Mm. It, you know, recording. Is like one thing that actually needs to be sophisticated or yeah. sophisticating and reliable. You need, and you need those are two two words that like do not resonate with me uh, when it comes to recording electronic music. Unfortunately, a life lesson: if you ain't on top of something, you just get someone in to do it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. That is, yeah. I'm like living. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, if you have the means, obviously, but like, yeah, that is definitely like something you have to know your limitations, right? You've got to like, you've got to be like, yeah, I'm just not good at that. Like, mm -hmm. see, for example, yeah. you know, like, yeah, like I don't know. I mean, I don't have, I don't, I, I don't have money to like give someone to like record, make sure my my signal is is working properly. You know, like. You got to take your shit seriously, and that means like you need to find the money, Nick. If you're really serious, but no, yeah. you know I don't believe in that. You know, I <laughs> know hey, it's so I, tough. I, you know, like if I'm not willing to cough up the cash to hire a recording engineer to record our weird DJ mixes, yeah, then maybe we deserve to only have half of it actually make it. You know, you, you're you're actually just defining your whole output and audience and you know, just, just by virtue of like, I'm actually not being serious about this. So, oh, I know. you know, what are you going to do? Just, just,
just just keep playing you know just keep playing the the shows to your like like local audiences i mean like, what else what else do you think was going to happen with with it nick come on like, just bought one of these it's um, a interface, interface or yeah. whatever oh that's a that's actually a a cool little nifty one you got there that's nice simple that is very simple yeah so what if i i just moved everything into the other room but <clears throat> yeah i've got some something that i oh it's there it is it's a, it's a steinberg i've got oh okay i i i got like the i don't want to say i got the cheapest one but i got the highest reviewed one under like 80 dollars. well that looks i mean it definitely looks legit it's legit it's got a uh, two inputs on it it's great well, what, what more do you need <laughs> you <gotta> go. <laughs> yeah yes, I, I, yeah it works it's it's fine i'll tell you um, what interfaces do will switch it up for you because that you'll you'll get like a different a whole yeah. different gig going on that with that for sure yeah like you do need to invest i think that's one thing like yeah because i've never recorded in a studio right so yeah. for me i'm like i would love to i you know just can't be bothered to put aside time for that right now like i'm literally like have i got material that i think is worthy of that yeah and i'm getting close but i'm like yeah i'm not i'm not it all seems like very precarious also yeah. like it's a whole f different ethos of music yeah documentation isn't it like because some people like my, my obsession uh body prince billy will Alden, like for them it's all about the record whereas for me it's never been about the record it's always been about being in the moment playing live mm -hmm. so there is something really interesting there about that different approach like if you're a recording artist and it's about the record music into the eternal kind of thing you know which i would love to I can feel myself like going, well, I can see the moon. Sorry. I, I would love to like, I can see that happening for me for sure. Like, uh, yeah. but I'm not there yet. Um, what do you think, what do you think it is about like the, the, the pension for performing live as opposed to recording, you know, if it's, if it's all about the live experience, um, you know, what is, what's, what's, what is it about that live experience that makes it, so much more rewarding or worth devoting your time and energy towards. It's just because I'm envious of uh, stand-up comedians. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I mean, if you talk about like how to work a crowd. Yeah, I mean, well, I had, I definitely had this thing where, for a minute of my life, I thought, oh, comedy is the purest art form because it's so dependent on the audience's reaction in that moment. Mm. So how much more of the moment could you be, right? So that was the thinking. And then, so the reason why it's so different with live playing shows, live doing music, whatever life, is that, you know, you are playing to an audience and there should be some magic in the air, some synergy there that could potentially change how good you play. Now, obviously, you need to be, I definitely think you need to be talented, right? You all need to, to know what you're doing. You can't just be like, oh, it's dependent on the audience. But I think there's something about it, the chemistry 
changes, you know, when certain kind of audiences are there. So I think there's something about that, which when you're recording, although, like I said, I can't speak for something that I haven't done, but I I imagine like recording, um, you're still trying to capture magic. I just, I just watched that four part um, documentary. um, And now I've forgotten forgotten his name. The, uh, all of Soundeed, what's his name? Um, how have I forgotten? Phil Spector. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just watched this four-part documentary. and um, But, you know, like, the whole concept of, like, capturing magic in from a studio perspective, mm-hmm. I guess there's that as well, right, where people's like, oh, we, like, kept, you know, capturing lightning in a bottle kind of thing. Um so I think there is still that element of like chemistry and magic in the recording process, but it's rarer to do that because it becomes like almost technical, or, you know, methodical or something recording. Right. That's my fear maybe of recording is that it's like to reduce it down to this theoretical thing of like, I'm now playing this thing, you know, like it's just mm-hmm. seems to me like to strip away the, you know, like what I've been talking about, the chemistry and the synergy or like the atmosphere yeah. of a performance. Um, yeah. And I am actually drawn to like live recordings more in when I'm listening to music. Interesting. So Yeah, you know, it's it's it is interesting because I you know, I'll I'll listen to like bootlegs or or even just like live albums, stuff like that, but I never prefer it to there's there's like certain instances where like like I would I actually prefer like Velvet Underground live recordings to their studio stuff. Um both are good, but there's something about the way they approach the live set that I think is more interesting than their recorded works. Or maybe it's just like the way that the two intertwine. Yeah. Um but you know, I mean the same could be said for stuff like Grateful Dead or Fish or something like that, where mm. you know, there is a bit of like element of like improv into it uh, yeah and like jazz of course but um i uh, for for most like you know i don't know you call it like electronic or um rock or uh mo- most like i most music like most band i i prefer the like the the cohesive curated methodical like we're going into the studio, like a pr- proper studio album. I'm even yeah. if it's you know something like an Aaron Dillaway release or something. Like I love the like actual statements, the records, right? Yeah, yeah. Hey, Brian's here. Hey, hi, Brian. I'm here. Hello. Hi, Brian. Hi. I back yeah, I, I, uh, I was at you and Heath's like uh reception at L Club like <laughs> what w- when was that like 2016 2017 oh I do not remember and there were hardly anyone there so that's <laughs> oh yeah, yeah you two have met oh yeah I was at your uh wedding reception no I did not I do not remember. yeah so we've we've since divorced but that's nice that you were like there and at Al Club, yeah, that was um pizza and uh prosecco party, right? That's yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think uh I think I showed I I like I crashed it. 
like uh emily oh, hill was like come come oh, out <laughs> emily's great yeah yeah, yeah. cool no no I'm, that's, I'm so glad that so hopefully i was all appropriately nice <laughs> i mean you you were you had just gotten married so i think you were very appropriate for for the situation <laughs> uh, i remember i remember it being a very fun time I cannot believe so. I'm so excited that like we met under those circumstances. That's really um, that's fun to hear. So I'm glad. Hello again, Brian. Yes, yes. Hello again. That's, that's a bit of a first for the pod. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Was that your wedding reception? Re reintroduction <laughs> live on the air. Incredible. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I. Um, we before you joined, we were we were just discussing like the um, discussing like the dynamics between the live music experience and like the recorded music experience. Like there are bands which I prefer to listen to live, yeah. Velvet Underground, uh, like Grateful Dead. Although I you know those first two Dead albums, I prefer to the live stuff, even like Europe seventy two. Anyway, but like it comes down to like, does your band jam? or not. And if your band jams, then maybe there's something rewarding in having your output be a, 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 um, a recreation or um, sort of a, a glance of your of your live experience, your jam, you know, capturing that moment, capturing that improv as so many like live jazz albums does, especially like free jazz stuff. Um, yeah. And, and we got to this by way of, of kind of talking about how we suck at recording music basically <laughs> i mean uh, recording studio recording and live performance are definitely two separate things like, they really I, are they are yeah different art art forms right unless you're steely dan yeah <gasps> Ooh. The they're, they're kind of the a live novel. studio experience yeah. <laughs> my friends in leeds just went to a steely uh, Dan cover show on Saturday in Leeds and that they were like yeah we're going to this and they were like we've seen them before they're literally that good they were like going again <laughs> I thought that That's was cool. so much so fun you know I didn't go because I'm you know a bit I'm just like what's the word uh I, I had other I was, I was on a other trip this weekend for that way but um yeah but I like the idea of that they enjoyed it so much that they saw that they were playing again and then they bought tickets and were going again and i was like that's a cover band that is and so hang on so there's live recording so there's live playing and recording and there's the cover band yeah yeah that's like the the kind of like bridge i feel yeah. um so i used to i used to date someone for for quite a while and uh their dad has been in like you know little like garage bands and like now he's like a dad rock jazz guy in uh western michigan he's like the conductor of the uh kalamazoo like jazz orchestra um <laughs> yeah so like when we were dating, like every time we would go to their house, he'd be like, oh, let me show you like some new stuff I just like recorded. And like, let me show you this video of the singer. 
And uh, I really feel like that's the bridge between like studio nerdery and like the live jamming experiences, like the the like dad band cover band kind of zone. Yeah, it's it's a real weird space. That is really fascinating. To oh, that is just there's something. Well, also the conducting things. I just watched Tar with Kate Blanchett. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, this that's just really that there's a lot that you just packed into that because yeah. I'm just thinking like does the music hold up regardless of who's playing it as well? So there's an element of like recording and then playing live, but then the song or the music, you know, and then does that transcend the performer? It's like session guitarists and, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. I think there's only like certain musicians and certain bands or like bodies of work that it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Steely Dan like is clearly like, you know, it's so refined and polished in the studio that like you need a refined and polished musician to play that in such a way where I would go actually go see it. But like, like it, it's almost at that like level where, you know, if you go to see like the symphony or something, play like Mozart or something, you know, you're going to hear Mozart mm-hmm. uh, basically. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if, if you're going to a Steely Dan cover band, you're going to hear Steely Dan basically. And it's just, sure. and it's played by it, it's on, on some level. It doesn't really matter. Like, if Donald Fagan is there or not, like if, if like you're playing the music the way it was meant to be played, you know, I'll I'll say this, like, this was interesting. I I sat next to uh, a conductor of the, um, he conducts, uh, he's based in Vienna. And I think he was, he was, um, well, so it's interesting. Conductors travel. This is something I didn't know. Like you, you do like stints, in certain places like you'll go on tour and you'll rehearse with like a orchestra um or a symphony for you know uh two or three days or something because like if you're a professional music musician like yeah you're expected to just like know everything take any sheet music and like you know that's that's what's expected of you you're a professional so he travels around doing like you know a week here a week there a week there and he leads different uh orchestras and symphonies through different bodies of work and this was like so fascinating to me because i had no idea that this was the dynamic at play for like contemporary classical music like uh you know it's you do a couple days of rehearsal to get uh acclimated to the sound of that orchestra and and the textures that play within it and then you learn how to bring out the best in it through a, a body of work like I don't know, Bach, Mozart, Brahms, something like this. And that kind of just blew my mind. He said that like the um the like only like true, true like classical music snobs or aficionados would actually follow and understand the differences between like a con- a certain conductor coming to town to perform Brahms, right? And and like you'd have to be like a pretty serious like classical music head to know like why that's particularly exciting or special, Mm. which, you know, if it, so it's like, if, if we're going to take, okay, 
here's an example. Like our friends, uh, Jack Callahan and, uh, um, uh, the rest of his, his group called barbed wire is like this cool new, like band out of New York where they're it's, it's 21st century punk music through samples and like basically audio meme ology. Yeah. It's fucking insane and weird, but they like just straight up did like a, a, like a, a loveless cover set like uh, last month, like I just covering they, my bloody Valentine. I think they played in Leeds last year and I went to see him, yeah, yeah. him and Jeff, Jeff Wisher. Yeah. yeah. I saw that. And it was, it was really, it was really cool. Actually. It was um, again about comedy, stand-up comedy um, yeah. timing is critical to that set. And I appreciate it because it's not that common in our world, actually that it is quite common in like noise kind of experimental stuff to have people play and play into comedy. And it kind of bothers me when I play when people like don't see the dark comedy coming out. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, that makes me, it does make me sad that like I, I overheard a lady in London say, and she could see that I was like right behind her, and she was like, oh, that first set was so sad. And I was just like, and her friends were like, yo, she's behind you. And then they just like out, you know, they just like exit. And I was like, oh, that's so sad that she thought that. But then I was like, yeah, but the set was pretty bummed out that time. So yeah. But I heard that and it made me think about. So anyway, going back to Jack Harlan, that that was um, the timing and comedic timing was like critical to that. And they killed it. So that was cool. Yeah. I think that well, is really interesting because especially when you're speaking of like avant-garde academic experimental noise like timing is so crucial to the arrangement and construction and performance that at least to me it's always seemed very natural to like throw comedic timing in there as well it works off of the same principles like something I've been thinking so deeply about is like any form of like creative expression is inherently rooted in communicating an idea or a feeling. So it's, it's not weird that there would be similarities between different disciplines that you can incorporate together. And I think, uh, People don't always get that. Completely. And they kind of miss the point because it's like it's fundamental to the fabric of that piece sometimes. You know, that it's like if you, I mean, you use all the tools that you have, right, when when you're doing, you know, this experimental avant-garde stuff that you just described and you're just like making use of all of it. But then I do think that, like you said about the timing of that is like brings a different texture into it and sometimes it is fundamental and if you miss that it's almost like you kind of missed it's like it's the 12 for me to be black and white about it it's the difference between 2d and 3d and i think that was why i was getting upset i was like oh they're only reducing it to that but there was there was so much more it was so much more sophisticated (laughs) like they didn't get it so yeah, so I don't, I definitely like get, but th- there's an intelligence involved in humor, is what I want to say as a statement. 
I want to say it. And the people that don't get my humor, I'm like, they're just in that smart. <laughs> well, or obviously my delivery was probably poor, but like, yeah, so I definitely think there's something about the kinds of people that we know that have a certain kind of humor. It's definitely some kind of like consciousness or like maybe intelligence or self-awareness even. Um, the ability to be that self-deprecating, I think that can also be alarming to some people. They're like, no, 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 they didn't mean that because that would be really, you know, like that kind of that kind of shtick. Yeah, some it's it's almost like it's not like a um, so bad. It's good. It's like sometimes it's like it's so dumb. It's good, right? Yeah, like, exactly. When, when it comes, exactly. like, okay, I'm particularly thinking of Neil Young, like Bromp Treb, and yeah, I'm playing with him next week. I know, I know. I saw <laughs> that. I'm, I'm. I wish I could be there. It's one of my favorite like live performances uh, wow. ever. Is is like seeing. I mean, a, a Neil Young's Neil Young's work is incredible. But like, I even I remember like this one uh, album he made like late to mid late two thousands. He gave me a copy of it. Um, it's like cassette. Maybe it was a CD. I don't remember. But like. I was cracking up listening to the CD, like just it, just like hilarious, like sounds like being played. I don't know, like jingle bells and like you know, like the the sound of like uh, the door stopper, like like stuff like that, and 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 you know him just like saying can opener, can opener, can opener, <laughs> like real things that are just like it's so absurd, it's so dumb. I love it. I can't yeah. get enough of it, and, but. Yeah. seeing that uh, going back to what we said but the live thing is like yeah seeing that like that's funny on cd and hilarious to listen to seeing that live is like a total experience like crying laughing okay because i've not seen so i met neil in west virginia at voice of the valley mm -hmm. and i don't recall seeing the set i think i was like crashed out in the tent but i think i heard it so I didn't get to see see him play. But um yeah, but I think you've just made me way more excited to see see him play. Because I think so I'm putting on a show in my hometown, which is Birmingham, home of metal, home of yeah. um, you know, RC and Steve Wood <laughs> is from my neighborhood, by the oh, way. Okay. Um there's also the poet laureate Benjamin Zephaniah who played the priest in Peaky Blinders, who's from mine in Neck of the Woods as well. Anyway, just to name drop. <laughs> so then so Neil are putting on a show. So I'm not playing it, but I'm putting on a show and uh, Neil's playing that and then he plays Leeds and then we play Sheffield. And um so I'm really excited that he's um like legit coming to like the UK because it's not easy for people to come over and play here. So a lot of admin cost involved and things. So, um, so yeah, I'm stoked and stoked, and um, it should be should be a blast. But I think I was wondering about my the audience in my hometown, and I was like, I wonder what they're gonna make of this. How's the? I mean, how would you? How's your your hometown audience different than say like something at like Cafe Odo or something? So I think that there is. Uh, oh, now I'm going to be quite illness now. But like, I, th I think there's like less absurdity going around. And there is stuff for sure going around. But like, I think there's there's not as much. People don't, in, in, like, in this DIY circuit that we know, 
people tend to bypass Birmingham. So I've put on a Wolf Eyes a few times there. Um, but they've also played this festival, Supersonic, that that so that's how they know Birmingham is from that. Uh, which is how actually I met Heath, by the way, in my hometown. Um, but yeah, so I think like people tend to skip over it. And um, recently, like the last few years, there's people associated with Napalm Death who've started to do um, or had played in, in um, promote shows. And so they, they're the biggest promoters of me in my own hometown. And um, so there's people there doing stuff, but it's like, if that's a different kind of crowd, you know, it doesn't kind of connect as you would imagine with the rest of the UK and the DIY stuff going on. But I have genuinely considered moving back to Birmingham and just like, you know, maybe I'll just make it happen by proxy of being there anyway, but, um, and put on shows and stuff. But, <clears throat> but yeah, so I think there is a difference is what I'm trying to say. And cause like Leeds is, I think has got history. I mean, Birmingham definitely has history. It needs to be more proud of its heritage or you know it is you know even like Duran Duran and like you can name endless you know Judas Priest you name it like lots of people but in terms of like contemporary stuff it's um it's a different kind of audience um it's got a different flavor and it's disconnected from the DIY scene that's going through like Glasgow, Edinburgh, Leeds, you know, Brighton, London. You know, it's a small network, remember. It's a few places, really. And um, But the UK, as small as it is, has got these weird pockets. So the weird pocket up north near Leeds is Todmorden. And there's a few venues there, and they have festivals there, and they have, like, it's basically what I call the Shire. And I, and I have said to people that, because it's like very hilly and green. And I people that live there, I'm like, yo, you're living inside of a stone circle. It's that kind of vibe. So I don't mind visiting. I couldn't live inside. Like me and Heath once went to Avebury and we did stay inside of a stone circle with this new, in this new age B&B with this lady that was just like, my husband couldn't reside here anymore. The energy was too strong. <laughs> You know, so like it's that kind of intensity. So, so there's stuff there. And then in in Wales, there was this history of like Newport having like cool stuff going on, and John Peel used to like go down there and like back in the day. So there were pockets, and it's like it's very interesting. I don't know even that much about it. I'll be honest. Like I just know like surface level stuff. There's so much rich history that people throw at me, and I just like throw back <laughs> i don't want to absorb it but um yeah anyway exciting I'll, I'll add to that birmingham techno like the british murder boys is like some of the best stuff out there Whoa. huge fan <laughs> of hard Reed hard techno and carl o'connor yeah. big fan so yeah what a city like incredibly rich history Post-industrial um, parallels with Detroit, motor, yeah. motor industry, kind of like stuff in Coventry is like not Birmingham. It's like its own city south of Birmingham. But there's still more, like I've been told, no, there's more parallels with Coventry and Detroit because I was like, oh, there's some parallels with Birmingham. But apparently Coventry is more because of the motor industry and stuff. But yeah, post-industrial city that did have lots of factories and you know there was stuff going on like my dad was a <clears throat> die caster in you know doing making car parts and stuff so it's like it is a part of that 
industrial heritage of of Birmingham. And also my dad was like, um, you know, first generation, like he came to England from India and there were a lot of Punjabi people and people from the Caribbean, Windrush, that came to Birmingham and and there were some of the cities, but like a lot of people in Birmingham. So it has this rich heritage from that as well, which makes up the fabric of the place. And I think when <clears throat> it was the, um, oh, what was the games? Commonwealth Games that were held in Birmingham and they really celebrated that for the first time. And I had never seen it celebrated like that. I mean, it was like from, and it was like almost that aware, that kind of recognition, validation almost was shocking i was like oh my like i'm it's not that i'm a part of this my dad is a part of this there are people like walking off the boats here being celebrated you know it was like so it was really interesting so there's that heritage also going down in birmingham so big up to the brum <laughs> sounds very very fascinating and like like how you had mentioned, you know, your father immigrating from India and the Caribbean influence, like, it just seems like that only would breed a really rich cultural musical her heritage in a place because of the rich musical cultures people are coming in from, which I think is really cool and fascinating. Um, yeah. And I think also, too, as you were speaking about, you know, kind of the pockets of weird in the UK and the DIY network, um, I was immediately thinking about the parallels to Detroit and here, like Detroit, as you know, you've been here, you've lived here for some time, like always getting skipped over by major artists or even like smaller indie artists, you know, they'll do Toronto and then go to Chicago and then totally skip yeah. out on Detroit entirely. Yeah. And I was just curious, like in your personal experience, like could you speak a little bit more to like some of those similarities that you saw from like working here and being back in the, in the UK? Yeah. So I once said, this isn't quite a few years ago. I once said to Fred Thomas and it made him laugh that, I said that the Birmingham people are grumpy ass motherfuckers, but they wear their heart on their sleeve and they're very helpful people like underneath and like very big hearted. And I was like, that's the parallel with like Detroit. <laughs> so there's that. So like culturally, you know, but um, yeah. So about like, kind of music and stuff I feel like it's almost the underdog Birmingham even as a city it's kind of like considered the, the second biggest city and you know, the second city of the UK but actually people are like no it's Manchester technically Manchester bigger but actually Birmingham has a much larger metropolitan area it has more people and sprawled out um so yeah so there are many parallels this is why I really connected with Detroit like I just felt at home and I haven't felt that way in other places in the US in that, to that degree. Um, but then I have always had a love for America. So like, that's just me, like, you know, being a kid and having ideas about America, you know, like all this stuff. So, so yeah, so I think there are definitely parallels with like culture, emotions, how we, how we talk and how we, how we connect with one another. I think there's something on that level. There's grit, 
you know, there's definitely like a certain element of like hustling and grit and working, you know, working hard and um yeah, so there's stuff there. Um I think like I was gonna say something else about like um yeah, like just in terms of like the music world and it feels as if people have tried to get this identity, you know, to, to build up Birmingham as like, oh, it's this, and it has, it has got a resurgence going on at the moment, but it's linked to very corporate interests and things like that. So that's a parallel also in terms of like the development of a place. So when he, so when, you know, when me and he bought that property over, you know, over Van Dyke and Macway, like it was just like there was a lot of development going on, and and I we were like, I I was aware. I was like, oh, we're gentrifying this area by moving in, you know. I was like, uh oh. But then our neighbors were like, oh, you sound because like you're not renting, you own this place, and you're a part of the neighborhood. And they were just relieved that it weren't going to be people partying, renting, and moving on, and that you know they were just. But I was aware of that. And I think like in terms of the development, look how quickly Detroit just suddenly, I mean, it was changing every time I visited. It had gone through some kind of major transformation in three to six months. And I do feel like Birmingham had that going on in certain pockets and places. So not to that degree. Detroit is far out the way that happened. It was another level. So yeah, so I think there's something about the geographical development and the physical spaces around. Um, and yeah, so there were, let's put it like this way, let's get real. So I heard people on the train and they're very middle-class white people say, oh, I love Birmingham. It's so great now. And I was like, why weren't it so great before? But I, I knew what they were saying, that they felt they could bring, you know, their their full self to the party and be like yeah this is my place you know but I was like it wasn't like that before like it's different now so, so I feel like maybe some parallels with- you get like people from other parts of the UK saying things like oh yeah I heard Birmingham's really coming back well I feel like that is actually something that has legit been said and I know like in terms of Detroit that there's been a lot of uh you know when they had that visa going on, that visa thing, and they were like, hey, yeah, if you've got some, like, extracurricular mass, you know, whatever. And I'm like, oh, technically I fit into this, and I could get this special Detroit visa to meet, you know. So they had that going on in Detroit back when I f- – did you not know, I had no clue we had a special visa. Detroit had a special visa, and they were like, yeah, we're going to flood this city with, like, with citizens with like master's degrees working in tech and all this shit and i was like how interesting that that's what the you know people decided to do to to improve the place let's just bring in migrants with like different experience world view and like all the so yeah that that was going down nick and it was rough because i remember seeing that and i'm like oh i don't want to be a part of that crew <laughs> but it was Fair appropriate yeah. yeah so there was that and then um yeah but anyway to brian to like you know to speak to your what you were saying there's like a lot of a lot of parallels like if you think of when i mentioned coventry as well which is like a city like 
but that specials from you know Coventry there's also um that's what I was going to say so again my my suburb of um that I grew up in until I was 16 is Handsworth and um Steel Pulse had that record Handsworth Revolution and there was a lot of Caribbean activity going on so I grew up um surrounded by a lot of interesting like dancehall was just I just heard that all the time and I can dance to dancehall it's just I was in school dancing to that stuff like you just so sometimes people comment because remember I'm a brown girl named Becky that knows how to dance to dancehall and I'm like what is going on but there's the parallel that me and Heath had because we both love dancehall we were just like so we've got there's some stuff there that's like um you know I don't I feel now I have more self-awareness because um, my siblings, for example, that they one their accents a bit different to mine, but two, we all speak, we all use patois sometimes when we're talking, and now I've got more self awareness of like I feel like sometimes we're appropriating things a little bit, and we've had different kinds of conversations around. Hang on a second, like, but Punjabi Brummies from from um, Birmingham Punjabi people um, as their identity speaking patois you know behaving certain ways and it's just that that's just the culture of the place and so um but i think of it differently so i remember saying to heath i'm just not going to go up to somebody and start like chatting in patois to them with this accent like and they don't know me like that's where i know it's appropriate like for me it's not appropriate where i know like there's certain lines that yes people cultures are mixing but you've got to understand it in a different way and even if I grew up with that it doesn't mean that I can carry on because I'm like but I grew up with that you know so I just learned there's, there's just some learnings there about um heritage and cultures kind of meeting but yeah there was like all kinds of like music stuff what's interesting for me is that although I mentioned like yeah I dance to dance hall and all this stuff I didn't really have any connection with any experimental or alternative music. I was raised in quite a strict Christian household. My mother converted a week before her arranged marriage to my dad. And so I was like very siloed out from the world for a really long time. And I mentioned like, like I moved out, I emancipated from my parents when I was 16. I was like, I, I don't want to have this life where I'm taking care of my siblings and like serving my parents' purpose. You know, I was like, I've got my own shit going on, you know, and I was like, so that's what happened with me. And that created a whole, like there were ramifications, repercussions from making that huge decision at that young age. But, um, but yeah, that speaks a lot to who I am as a person and my resilience and like drive feeds into pretty much everything I do. Um, but there wasn't that exposure to you. So, cause I always used to say to Heath, like, how did you find out about the stuff? And it's like, oh, it's just a friend just like, but I met, I didn't have any friends. And even in school, they were like, oh, you should like get this bootleg CD of the Red Hot Chili Peppers and stuff. You know, I was just like, oh, cool. Yeah. And like, you know. So, but I, I did start going to live music in Birmingham. Like I was started seeing like punk shows and stuff, and then I ended up being in a punk band when I was like eighteen at uni and stuff. But 
that was just me like trying to discover the world. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in the church. <laughs> and they were like evangelical Pentecostal churches. So it was just like another yeah. So that's that's, like, that's serious church. Serious church, Brian. Serious church, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's like, a parallel with the US. Yeah. You know. So um, I remember like uh when I was going through like high school rebellious phase kind of thing, like music was pretty much paramount to like my identity. Um, I'm wondering like, like what was the soundtrack of your emancipation? Well, like, this is so really interesting. <laughs> I would say, um, I would say Jamiroquai. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> too, too young to die, baby. <laughs> I love Jamiroquai. Um, I, no, I still love Jamiroquai. I ain't gonna, you know. But um, yeah, so I, I think that I had. Oh, so when I was, so I still had like MTV in my life. So there was like some channel two stuff going on, but when I was a, when I was really small, I just want to mention this before I answer your question. Nick. When I was really small, I remember. I must have been four, but I remember this most extreme, like, and it's so vivid. Um, There's some kind of children's TV show, but there was a lady making experimental music, and I still to this day don't know who it really was. Um, and the lady was doing vocal experiments, and she was saying, born to be wild. But, like, saying it is, like, really fucked up way, you know, and I was just... It basically went straight through to my soul. I spent my entire existence seeking out that kind of sound and that kind of, you know, v that, that kind of experience. I was like, what is this? But then the soundtrack to my man's patient probably, you know, it was, it was mainly um, like pop punk and some, Oh, Foo Fighters were definitely around in the in the ether. There was this band I was just talking about it with a colleague at work. Hundred Reasons that were so it's very like indie kind of indie pop stuff going around. Um, but I was seeing a lot of live music at that time, and I would just see anything that was going on. I remember seeing Save Ferris the day that nine eleven happened, and they were like, "We're in England." And this thing has just happened in the U. It was insane, like this weird. Yeah, yeah, but I was nine eleven. It was like right when it 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 happened. I think it was that day, and uh, they still played the show. And because um, remember, there's the time difference as well, so we're like five hours ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I was seeing because I again I've had this obsession about live experience. I was just seeing anything and everything that was around, and so. <clears throat> yeah, so I feel like in a lot of ways, I still had, I've always had a deep appetite for vocalists. Mariah Carey has been on rotation for forever, and she will be there until the end of time, in my view. So, yeah, so I've had like a thing about powerful, like Alanis Morissette and like other like vocalists. That was a classic, um, Jagged Little Pill. And like, yeah, I'm trying to think. But anyway, give you a little flavor. Anyway, yeah. Nick. Nice. I think like, yeah, I was um, 
that was that's like uh, it's just like all over the place like from yeah. ska to punk to pop like nothing was no. off limits i was pretty much like you know very like punk metal noise that was like the sound psychedelic that was like the soundtrack to my uh yeah. rebellion like i didn't like mtv was like out of the picture at that point like mainstream pop and stuff was like you know I, I was too cool for it or something you know i couldn't it wasn't maybe it just wasn't like engaging me or, or anything like that um but it's, it's radiohead for a while dude i mean i was into yeah. i mean like honestly i was just like thirsting for this and i didn't find it until like basically when i discovered that festival many years later supersonic which is when i met heath but i was just like oh this is the world that i've been like wait i mean like waiting for this and it was i only went because somebody had said oh you're back in town like you should just volunteer at this thing so i was just there as a volunteer i would you know wasn't gonna pay for this weirdo stuff and then because I didn't recognize any of the names, right? So I go and then I'm like, what? I was like, finally. Um, but yeah, but I mean, if we kind of go back a few years, it's definitely aware of the fact that I could not find an identity. And I think that was the thing that made me feel like, okay, I'm just going to be dissatisfied. Oh, but one thing did happen, sorry. So there was this Enemy Awards tour and there were all these bands playing like Black Rebel Motorcycle Club and all these bands. But the opening act was, it just blew my mind. And they were like climbing up the scaffolding and shaking it and laughing and stuff. It was fucking Andrew WK. Because I was just like, what the fuck is that? And then since Mark Morgan told me that, he was like, oh yeah, I was on that tour. And I was like, you were in Wolverhampton at that show. What? That blew my mind. I was like, I was a teenager just like going to shows all the time. So I was like, yeah, I'll go to that. And then to see that, I was like, what the, and he could, I just remember like Andrew WK just holding the scaffolding, shaking it and just laughing at the crowd, you know? And I was just like, this is, I've found something, <laughs> you know, I just like could not stop. I was the only one laughing as well. Like I was like, why am I the only person thinking this is amazing? <laughs> You're the only one who, who who got the joke, apparently. Audience of one. <laughs> well, I I'm kind of interested. So, was that Andrew WK performance at the Supersonic Festival, or was this before? This was a the NME. Yeah, this was at the NME Awards tour that went on. The enemy being that mag that music magazine. Together. Right. Yeah. 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 Musical Express. Yeah, that's it. I didn't even know that until now <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> so yeah so they they had like various yeah i guess they had that tour but i had i remember there was a friend that wanted to go and i was like yeah yeah i like count me in because i don't think i would have gone by myself but i right. can't remember who i was with which is interesting i think um, uh oh sorry i didn't mean to cut you off uh, no i just remember the other band is interpol oh wow yeah that was a that was a pretty big moment. I would say I remember <laughs> I remember when both of those bands, both Andrew and Interpol, were just like the biggest like indie thing happening. Yeah. Um, but I think it's interesting that you mentioned like you just like went 
with a friend during this time where you're just going to stuff and you're like trying to figure out what's for you. Cause I, I remember that experience. Like when I was like, you know, from like 13 to like 18 in high school and stuff, like just going to anything. If anybody was like, Hey, I'm going to go to this concert at St. Andrews, like to see whoever I'd be like, yeah, I'm down because like, being a kid is boring at that age. And yeah. also, like you had mentioned, you know, you're trying to find what fits. So you like try out all of these different venues, literally, and like find the one that sticks. And it sounds to me that like this supersonic festival was really kind of that pivotal moment for you. Yeah. Oh. And, uh, I'm curious to know, I don't, I don't know anything about it. So if you wouldn't mind just letting us know what Supersonic is and like who was playing and like, yeah. how did you figure out who all of these bands that you didn't know the names of were eventually? Yeah. Uh, so basically, cause it's, it's a whole world that opened up and then I continued to volunteer for them and did for, for many years. And I worked as artist liaison and they considered the story of me and Heath meeting there as their like greatest like love story. And like we're not together anymore. But anyway, it's still cool. But the the fact of the matter is that this year is their twenty fifth year, I believe, or something like that. What something wild like that? And they had over the years like various acts headlining. Um, like one of the times that I remember was like pretty far out was Swans headlining and the ceiling falling, like crumbling into Crazy Jim's drink. And he was just like, oh, I guess the ceiling's going to fall. Like, <laughs> oh go God. out. Like, uh, and so, yeah, so there was like all kinds of amazing people. So I mentioned I did artist liaison. So I went to, I studied philosophy at this university called Warwick. And I also did my master's in continental philosophy there. And whilst I was there, I volunteered at Warwick Art Centre and I got to see loads of art, theatre, music, stand-up comedy for free because I was just there. I basically spent all my time doing that or filming because I was part of Warwick TV. So I had this appetite for curiosities and just people. So I was always absorbing because I mentioned very closed off when I was like growing up and stuff. So just absorbing everything. And so part of that, I did some artist liaison. I think I, w- I was security for Van Morrison once. <laughs> wow. Anyway, so, um, <laughs> that's crazy. And, yeah. And CV. <laughs> Sorry? It was a, that's a, a great match on the CV. So, yeah. So then, um, so then in this role of Supersonic, they were like, oh, there's some artist liaison. I'm like, oh, yeah, I've done that before. But that was like spending like over an hour with Tony Conrad just chit-chatting and then like you know Mike Watt and I, I was like I remember once being like in all of the artist days and area and I was like oh do you want because he'd broken his leg and I was like oh do you, do you want do you want help with your guitar there and Shahzad Ismaili was playing in Secret Chiefs 3 and he was like you mean bass and I was so embarrassed you know and then I was just like yeah bass guitar you know but I was so embarrassed I was mortified and then um I was saying to Mike oh yeah I know Detroit like blah, blah, blah. you know I started going to Detroit by then and he was like I'll tell you about Detroit 
he was like, you don't. He was like basically trying to one up me. Like, and I'm like, of course. Like, I didn't know anything really about his history with like, obviously now I know, but like, I didn't know these things. And so I was discovering the world of music through meeting the artists directly one-on-one and then to see them play live, like Simeon from Silver Apples hung out with him. He was really nervous about playing. And then that show wasn't his best, sadly. He was so worried about stuff not working properly. And then the, the stuff had actually not, like it didn't work, you know? And I felt, even to this day, I feel like I should have been more confident to say, like, it's okay, Simeon, and just, like, held his arms or something, you know? And I always think of these moments of, like, meeting all these people. Um, I did make um, Penny Rimbaud laugh, like, pretty hard, like, once. And I didn't really know much about him at that time. But I just I said something, like, off the cuff, because I was always trying to, like, be whip smart all the time, you know? And then, but it made him, it really made him laugh. And now I'm like, oh, actually, it must have been really funny. I wonder what I'd said because I don't remember. But you know, so like, so that's how I entered this world. And it's like, I've always had that thing about uh, curiosity about people. And that's literally anyone I meet, like at the bus stop or, and my friends say, like, how do you get these interesting conversations out of taxi drivers? Like, um, there was one Uber driver in Detroit that was like, some marriages are just pissing against the wind. And I was like, so I was like, yeah, putting that in the notebook. Yeah, so I have a curiosity for people. It's not necessarily music, but that really informs my, like my lived experience of the world, but like what I do as well, like and my, my creative output. Um, yeah, and to like another thing that happened was because obviously meeting Keith and then us having this long distance relationship that opened my world up to so many people like one of the first times I was really jet lagged I just flown into Chicago because it used to be cheap flights from I think Birmingham to Chicago at one point and um, Heath was playing at Empty Bottle and I was like you know I'm just gonna hang backstage I was like I was just so jet lagged and it was really late and I spent two hours talking to someone there. And then I was like, do you mind? I'm just going to have a nap. And they're like, oh, yeah, maybe I'll have a nap too. And then they're telling me all this history of what they've been doing and all this stuff. And I'm like, and then at the show, I was like, I'm sorry, I'm not going to get to see you play. I'm going to leave now. It was Morton Subotnik. So I was just like, but I did get to see him play after that in Detroit at our club and in Sweden. And me and Heath actually saw him play the same set. It sounded completely different in our club. The sound system there, just like it, like again, the analogy of two D, three D. But Sweden, it was like at Inkonst Festival. It it was a great sound system, but it was like two D. When you played in our club, it was like a three D thing going on, and so it was the same set. And I've never heard a set sound so different. It was remarkable. Um, yeah, so Heath opened up this whole other world of, but I was drawn to Heath as a person. I didn't know his music. And I was just like, what, who, what are you? <laughs> yeah, I think we're, we're still all asking that question. Yeah, <laughs> even, to day, even to this day. <laughs> even to this day. No, he's asking the same about me. <laughs> yeah, so I do think that, cause I remember the moment I met Heath, I'll just talk about that. 
was that I was serving food to loads of artists and there's like a whole tray of food and stuff. And I just saw these two aliens come through the fire exit into the hall and they just like crawled over. I just like ate like, and just like, it was Steve Kenny and he actually slided like these two drinks tickets across the table and didn't even say anything. And I just like grabbed the tickets and just like gave him his drinks, you know? And then like he did the same, but I remember it like it was like really slow motion and super like fucked up, like some like weird horror drama thing, but it was obviously not like that. But, and then I just was like, it immediately joined to eat. And I was like, when are you guys leaving? <laughs> and he was like, we'll fly out the next day or something. But then he came back to play ATP and that was when Godspeed You Black Emperor was headlining. So obviously that I'd never been to ATP and he said oh do you want to come so i just i went and due to freak snow in the uk which blocked loads of trains for seven hours or more i turned up at the site after the box office closed and they wouldn't let anybody on site and the security was saying you're gonna have to sleep in the box office and stuff like that and then i was like well and they were like who's this guy you know and i'm like he's not answering his phone he's not answering his email i don't know and they're like oh who is he we probably know where he's staying and then I was like, oh, it's the, in the, like, this is his name, Sick Lama. And they were like, oh, well, maybe our friend can drive you. And this little caddy just dro drove me. And they were like, but you know, the festival's going on. So he's probably at the festival. He won't be in. So they just drove me anyway. And Heath was stood outside, like having a cigarette. And the, the stars just aligned. And it was like, la, 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 la. So yeah, so that's how we met properly. Because I hadn't met him properly before. And I, I turned up and I was literally like, so I'm staying here. <laughs> and he was like, oh, there's wine. And like all the artists had like a little chalet. And I'd never seen as much alcohol in that place as there was that. I was like, it was literally a whole table covered just for one person. And I was like, they got him right. Like, was like, <laughs> so yeah, so it was, um, so that's how like um, the past, you know, in terms of music, paths crossing that world opened up through Heath and like I, men I mentioned like Morton Sabotnik was like that was like I was hearing all this stuff and I'm like it's just incredible but I was never ever really impressed and I just had this insatiable appetite I don't feel that way now but when I was younger I had that thing of like when I was at university I was I ended up living with somebody who used to be in psychic TV and they were saying, Oh, we're selling stuff. And it's selling for like, you know, 500 pounds. And I'm just like, so, you know, and uh, I just was, you know, I didn't really get it then. And obviously now it's like, well, like how amazing, but at the time, and the reason why I kind of got to know them was because they expressed some interest in my, punk band I was talking about being in a punk band and I was younger and, then, and I was like oh I'm still in this band and I must have been 18 19 and they were just like this is really interesting this person that used to be inside <laughs> anyway it's like it's just bizarre and they were also yeah I don't want to reveal too much about their identity and stuff but like yeah so um so now obviously there's some parallels there with this philosophy department because Warwick philosophy is where Mark Fisher was, where Nick Land was, and all these people were. And I was there just that because of that like kind of ending, this super ma magical time. But it was you were still aware of stuff. And 
I probably crossed paths with everybody and not realized, you know, but that was a kind of vital place. Um, so because of that, I was just very, because of these energies going around or whatever, I hate the word energy, but like, I was still searching for like, what's, who am I? What's my thing? And I just was never impressed with anything. Like I mentioned until I was like hearing, um, I think even like when Secret Chiefs 3 played at Supersonic, I was like, what is this? And it was so, um, I was like, there's some kind of self-awareness as well. Like, it's not just math rock. There's some, you know, and I was like, then I was able to tell them directly. <laughs> I was like, and then I remember Shahzad Ismaili said something like, yeah, it's about the suspension of disbelief or something. He said something really like pretentious and I'm like, yeah, I'm feeling that. And there's other stuff going on. So my philosophy mind is obviously at that point, like layering stuff with that, but I, and I never was into that kind of stuff, but it was the intensity. And I was like drawn to the intensity of it. So, um, when Heath was there, he was playing with demons and it was demons with Siklama. Um, and so, yeah, so there was like, yeah. So anyway, I just went down that rabbit hole. Sounds like, like a, almost like Forrest Gump, like just like not knowing like, you know, like who you're talking to or something. Like you just inadvertently somehow find yourself in a strange situation with like, you know, someone you've definitely heard about, like a seminal uh, uh, artist of our generation. You have no idea what they look like or anything like that. And like, oh yeah, like that that like old guy you were talking to about like brownies for like two hours. Yeah, it's Terry Riley actually. You know, like, I don't you keep having like experiences like this. Like, I don't know. I I don't. I it's hard for me to like think uh, of a similar moment I've had, like, I, I, I think, um, you know, the, the, it wasn't necessarily like my, the, the like musicians I looked up to, but like throughout like my last like decade, like working in the catering industry, I know I've like catered for like absurdly like rich people or famous people yeah. that I didn't know, like Migos, for example, like I fed Migos sushi. And uh, that's like my like claim to fame is like, you know, like I had no idea I was feeding Migos some sushi. Like, I don't know. It's but like it's never been like someone I actually like looked up to or like loved their music or their work. It was always like some far fetched like celebrity or something. So it's like interesting to hear about your like. Um, I don't know. You have it's the way you've like engaged with avant garde or experimental music is is in such a strange way. Like you're entering it through like. I guess volunteer work in in like the music industry um by way of being like an artist liaison i guess like you know that one festival was was probably like the first like big like um oh wow like this whole other world of of music exists um but i'm, I'm also like kind of wondering at what point you like actually started actively participating like what was your first like piece of musical equipment you bought like where did where did like you as as a musician begin and and what kind of stuff were you playing or making so first of all i was always singing in church mm -hmm. so i've always done vocals and then when 
I went to university <clears throat> amongst joining Warwick TV and all sorts of stuff, because I was in lots of societies. I joined a band and so I was 18 and then I joined this punk band and I was lead vocalist in this punk band. And um, so that was like nearly 10 years before the festival. Um, so yeah, so there was that, but then coming back into it. So like did that for a bit and then stopped. Right. And then kind of got into more like filmmaking, writing, editing, and mainly writing. But then what happened to me when I was 23, cause remember I'm like vocalist and song, I'm like writing song, writing lyrics and writing poems and stuff, but oh, now I'm going to just keep name dropping, but whatever, don't care. It's facts. Um, after chancing cow uh volunteering for darren brown and meeting him afterwards just in the street which was weird because there was there were loads of people around him suddenly not just as i'm crossing over the road and i was like well he's right there Miles. and then he signed my Kant's critique of judgment as if he wrote it like manual Kant and you and darren brown i found out later he actually paints portraits of philosophers anyway as he gave me the book back i looked up and then suddenly there were all these people around us and i'm like what the fuck just happened? That's so weird. And then the next day, my bag gets stolen in London and all the poetry I'd ever written, gone. So they're like lyrics and stuff as well. So I just had to grieve for all of writing, all these poems, all these songs, gone. So I just stopped doing music until I met Heath. And Heath was like, you're a natural. Like, why aren't you doing this? And he encouraged me to to do it he was like because i was just like oh yeah what but i just didn't because of that experience and grieving that i just didn't want to get attached to anything again and um but then yeah so then i did mirror terrarium with Heath after that band pump bands called palm violet and then with Heath doing mirror terrarium and we were living in southwest which is when i met eunuch so we were living with then Kristen Cap. And, um, yeah, I was just like, yeah, I'll do some like gnarly vocals, you know, and whatever. And then it sounded cool. And then we played, I think we got asked to play a show and played a show. And then it just like from that, you know, did more. And I wanted to do way more, but Heath was way more interested in sick llama stuff. And to be fair, like his stuff was really cool. Like his, he just sent something the other week and I was like, his, this sounds Wait, his his production talking about recording his production value whatever's gone up or like he seems to have got a different thing going on now, but um still like cool and intense, um but sounds like more polished or something. But anyway, so I was doing Mirror Terrarium and wanted to do more, and then we recorded in Sweden at Interart Center, and we wanted I wanted to re release that as a record, and Heath wasn't into it, so I was just like bummed out, and then got asked to play in England solo and um, yeah and so I played and then there was another time where um, what I think is maybe my second or third show in England um, ended up supporting Bodyhead like Kim Gordon at Cafe Otto and I, I was just like what is going on you just cannot believe this blah, blah, blah. and it was like one of the worst sets I've ever played <laughs> But I did play this other festival, Colorado Space in Brighton, and that was one of the best sets I'd ever played. And um, it was just a really cool experience. 
So I got a taste. It's so different playing solo. It's, yeah, it's, it's, you have to learn a whole different thing. I've always been into performing and I would describe myself as a performer, but I had to like acquire a whole skill set. I didn't have, uh, or just build on some skills. And then it's creating an atmosphere that, you know, some people like can just do that. And yeah, amazing. Um, Luckily for my vocal style, like um, I can be seated and like it can be really, still be really intense. But then what happened in pandemic was before the vaccines came out, I got COVID and I had long COVID and it means that I can't party anymore and I can't drink a lot and like all this stuff. And it's changed how I play shows because it just changed everything. And I had to learn how do you play shows solo and sober and all this shit. And it changed what it sounded like and it really bummed me out. <laughs> but now I've gotten to that point where I'm like, oh, I got my, um, got that intensity back. And I feel more confident about what I'm doing. And I can feel like I can experiment because I'm also live improvising. With Heath, I was live improvising lyrics. I was just like, I'm going to just feel the words in the, in the moment. And that's what kept it live for me. I was like challenging myself. Otherwise, I didn't want to do it. Because I was like, what's the point of doing it unless I'm pushing myself, you know? So, um, yeah, so I don't improvise lyrics completely now but they are largely improvisations based on concepts and stuff but I do with a lot of visualization to kind of think it through and stuff like that so so I'm doing it you know after encountering Keith and his encouragement really and yeah because he once said to me and his words like mean something you know and but he did say like you know, you can just like get on stage and do anything. Like you should, why aren't you doing that? And I don't have an answer to that because it's just like, if you've got someone else there with you, you can lean on that. You can also build off of that. If it's just you, it's like, you got to build it, you got to lean on it, and then you got to do So, um, yeah, so I've had to just navigate a lot, but I feel like I've kind of come a long way and I feel like I'm just getting started again, which is why I was saying to you, Nick, like kind of ready to start, like maybe even record something in a, in a kind of, st- not studio context, but have someone else record it with me to get it where I want it to be. And I've seen friends really invest in that and and do so well, whereas I just didn't feel like I had material to warrant that, even though like Otto did have, Cafe Otto did have a pandemic label that they did and they asked me to do a little release. So I, I took over a year to do it. I was working, I've always worked full time. So my time is precious and I don't, I'm really bad at taking time off. And also remember when I was in going to Detroit, I would be there for like three months at a time. And that gives you time to really kind of explore stuff. And if you're working full time, a weekend's not going to cut it. So that's that's the issue for me, that it's dedicating the time. We were just talking about the start, Nick, about like you got to invest in it 
a little bit. Just invest your time. Invest your money, right? <laughs> so, so that's true. So that's where it's at. Just do it. I mean, that's that's our biggest hurdle as well. It's like we don't have time, and that's it's really strange. Never <laughs> enough time. No. Never. I, I, it's so funny. Um, you, we were talking about this and and kind of talking about Heath. I remember we had this crazy idea when because we have like this puree of manifesto where it's it's like it's just like we it's a set of rules and limitations for how you make puree of music, right? Okay. And we were like, we should we should just like pay Heath to record uh, pure rave albums for us, like when we didn't have time. We're like, I think I was like Heath, like here, check this out. Like, we'll give you like fifty bucks per album. I I don't know where it went, but like <laughs> we were like, I was just like, we should get like yeah, like how can we turn like pure rave into like uh, a music factory or something or music factory? But it's like. The most like insane, deranged Muzak factory of all time. I you don't know. should have like Heath at your helm doing that. Like you would yeah. be, you'd be cool. I'm sure he'd be like, yeah, now. <laughs> I mean, that's what that's what's cool about Pure Rave is we do have like a but we have like 12 different people now that can like perform as Pure Rave. That's Actually, cool. you should if you ever want to perform as Pure Rave, you know, I'll send you. Send you the info. You can. Happy you're more than welcome. I already covered for Kalino once in um, Ithaca. I think we were in, nice. and he was like, "I've got to take a phone call. Can you just do this set?" <laughs> and then he had all these cassette tapes lined up, and I was just like, "Sure, cool, yeah, yeah." So I was just like playing this tape, like, these tapes one after the other, you know. And then someone yeah. came to me afterwards and like, "Are you DJ Dog Lady?" Your dog lady. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, looked. A heat was stood there when they said it, and I just looked at them and I just went. Yeah. Like I did just like you have to be meek about that one, but it's true. Yeah. So and I was in that moment I was. That's the fact mm-hmm. of it. So but yeah, I'm totally down to do pure rave. <laughs> yeah. We'll we'll get you set up, we'll get you verified, we'll get you we'll get you certified. Wanna be accredited. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Was- well, like our we have we have a dream of doing a world tour where it's all happening at the same time, different places, and it's just different people doing it. Mm-hmm. That's that's the vision. That is the... Didn't someone actually do something like that in the pandemic where they had, like, a, they had, like, a global fest and they had, like, different things on all around them? Well, I remember, I mean, there was plenty of, like, you know, Zoom gigs that I attended, which were all, like, they're varying in like quality. There were some that were incredible. And um, like by way of just Zoom being a different medium for a live performance, you know, they it opened up a lot of interesting potentials and possibilities. Also, yeah. like having the one-way audience was like really interesting. Like that was that was kind of a, a an interesting dynamic of it. But like I remember it was like one of those appreciation of music events that like uh uh basically like the Nina crew was putting on and, and Jack and I forget who else, uh, Brian Blomerth, but they would, uh, they had like this band that was like made up of like animal crossing characters. Like everyone got in the animal crossing game and then like picked up these rudimentary, like one note instruments. And like, they had like this crazy, like 25 minute composition that was like, it was like eight performers, like all in the game together. And then it was streamed to the 
the Zoom call, like I had never seen anything like that, but it was it was highly out there. Very cool. That's actually one of the Far Off Sounds episodes we do want to make when we finally get a little bit of money to work with. But um, yeah. I'll throw, I, you some, I'll throw you some dough for that, Nick. Hey, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Um, but yeah, like, I don't know if, if like anyone had like that. Um, I, I know like Puffy Areola's pay, played Toledo mm -hmm. and Cleveland on the same night, but uh, that was like a weird, dysfunctional, hilarious sort of thing as opposed to like a concerted effort i think mm. so I don't, I don't know like blue man group i guess is like the closest like pure comes to like in terms of like i don't franchise, know franchise band franchise band yeah <laughs> super into that idea yeah but uh yeah no i think that kind of speaks to the question that i have um you know Rebecca, you mentioned how your relationship to performing has changed since getting long COVID. And I'm curious to know, like, what is it like for you now dealing with a chronic health issue? Like, uh, we, we have a band member, Cy Tulip is in puree with us and another amazing solo performance artist person. Yeah. Um, but also deals with, with chronic issues. And I think as COVID, you know, kind of showed the world that like, you know, disabilities are real people with disabilities exist in mm -hmm. our world. And I hope there was a little bit more awareness for that in like the gig world. Um, so I'm kind of curious to know how do you feel as someone who suffers from long COVID um, getting back into performing? How do you feel about accessibility and like being in a group of a lot of people and like yeah. what kind of things are you hoping to see and like do you want out of your performances now? So, so yeah, twofold. So first of all, I definitely think like part of what is not good is that people are kind of just forgotten that there are some things that you can do to make things a bit more accessible. And for a minute, people were like on it and then they kind of dropped off. So it's like weird thing with that. Um, I mean, sometimes it's a struggle to even find the chair in a venue to sit on. Cause I'm like, I cannot, st sometimes I have it to stand for a whole gig. And sometimes I'm like, I, I regret it the next day for like days. I'm like, oh, my body's still like, so you're making these like, how many spoons do you have in that day and like whatever that week? And so, so there's something that very basic stuff about like that. And in terms of like large crowds, I just wear my mask all the time. But the UK now, um, I was just at a show on Friday. I don't normally go out. I just stopped going to shows for a bit because I just kept getting sick. People just like, talk in your mouth and stuff and like all this shit and it's like basic etiquette that people just forget i mean people are forgetful like i'm forgetful too so like as a formula people kind of created one and then threw it away um and then i'm still like fairly able-bodied so it fucking sucks when you realize like this is such a minor thing 
for me and yet actually this massively impacts other people so yeah so i don't think there's that recognition um and uh in terms of like properly addressing it making spaces accessible particularly diy spaces they tend to be gnarly spaces and you know people are doing what they can and there's a lot of goodwill but sometimes it just falls flat and that's a shame and also some people i like saying i'm just gonna keep saying some people (laughs) but i've noticed that there are some people that um they kind of like give the impression they're just like doing stuff on the fly because it's diy you know and it's like Dude, man, you've got a responsibility. Really sorry to say it. But if you're a promoter or if you're like a venue, you know, person, like you've got a responsibility. You're not doing it on the fly. And so it just, there's this really weird, complex stuff going on. There's little weird power dynamics and struggles and stuff. There's, there's, it's really dense. And sometimes it feels impenetrable, is what I'm going to say about it. So there's that, and but on the most part, if you raise awareness to it, then I think people have got a lot of goodwill. But if I tend to find like you have your, it's on you to keep pressing, and um, that's that's sad. Well, I would prefer people who organise stuff just took on that responsibility and just saved lots of people from that struggle of having to like. So yeah, and then the second part. Was it about music and creating it? I've forgotten. Yeah, like um, since your relationship to performing has changed, like yeah. um, what what are some of the things that have changed, I guess? Like what is the direction you're taking your project in uh, yeah. given the, the changes you've undergone? So the funny thing about long COVID that I wanted to say, because I had, I thought like, oh, I'm going to pre-think it. And then I was like, no, no, I'm going to be in the moment. And then I'm like, no, there's some things that I just was like, well, what am I going to disclose? The thing for me about long COVID is that I'm like, I'm not massively impacted by it, but actually it's wrong to say that because I am actually in my day-to-day life, a lot of the decisions I've made are around the fact that I have this condition. And I'll give you an example. So I feel like I'm living within a certain wavelength and anything that's too intense in terms of emotion or chaos or uncertainty or just like uh, even um, horror types of, I cannot exist in that. Living in this like pretty middle road and that includes the types of film and tv i watch i cannot watch stuff that's too intense cannot watch art house i'm like i don't know what's coming or it's too you know it's too intense or whatever it has changed my viewing habits which i used to love i used to love watching a lot of cool stuff and i just can't do that anymore i feel physically drained after it's a weird phenomenon so i'm living in this weird middle ground wavelength that I'm describing and that has informed the kind of music that I'm doing in some ways because everything I perform or do is deeply personal and I didn't want to be like complaining or moaning but that is kind of a lot of what I'm doing like in my lyrics anyway it's just an expression of a thought of whatever 
And then in terms of intensity of performance, and I mentioned I can't drink any, like I, like I, I have been drinking occasionally and I've regretted it for weeks after. It just, it's just not worth it. And um, so I used to, drinking used to kind of loosen me up in terms of like doing vocals and performing. So you have to just like, I had to train myself to just be grounded and naturally relaxed at being a kind of, you know, performing and like to do that in a way that doesn't then deplete you more is an art form because you're just doing it from a place of being grounded. And that's actually way more hardcore <laughs> than like doing it like with some like, you know, influenced in whatever way. So and then even like the type of vocal I was doing has changed. So I used to like doing like bellowing, like very low bellowing sounds sometimes. And um, it just takes a lot out of me to do that. So I just like try the different style and different like techniques that are more like mid and higher range, really. And like uh, I think I could still do what I used to do before now because of my the, the physical way that I'm choosing to perform um, changes as well. And again, when I talk about express, being expressive, it's I'm like physically expressive. And I didn't used to be like that, but I'm going to start doing that. And then I'm like, it just kind of um, works. So there is a way to express yourself without necessarily using your vocals as well. So there's like this balancing act between physical and vocal. And then, by the way, there's all this other shit going on that I'm like messing with to do like, I have been using the synth and stuff, but like other sounds and, you know, textures. Um, and I'm still exploring that because I had this whole philosophy in my head of stripping everything down. So that's like with Heath, I only wanted to do vocals because I was like, I have to strip it down because if I overcomplicate, what am I learning? I'd rather learn one thing and then build on it. So it meant that like a lot of the gear I was playing, you know, I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to complicate things because I need to, let's just get that right. Let's just explore that. There's so much there. But then what I did was I bought a guitar <laughs> and I don't know how to play guitar. I started having guitar lessons. Thank you, Tyler. Shout out. But um, I did, I've been playing shows with a guitar, using it for sound purposes only, <laughs> which I know like has been done. But I was like, I'm going to just, because I needed to keep it interesting. So I calculated in my head, it's worth carrying the guitar around for the curiosity and interest that it keeps me. Because remember, I said, oh, it has to be challenging me in some way. And I calculated, okay, it's worth that, but I'm not going to carry some other stuff. And so there's all these calculations that you have to literally make, literally in terms of the gear you're carrying. Um, and then how complicated it is, because if it's too complicated, it can stress you out. And the stress impacts you also. Bearing in mind, I'm working a full-time job that has been over the years, like sometimes incredibly stressful. And then I don't want, and that stress, I feel it physically now, which I didn't used to. 
So um, you have all these different calculations you're making. So yeah, to answer your question, it's like a calculation about your vocal style to what you physically carry to the type of you know instruments you want to even use. I stopped using percussion for some reason. Like I had a kazoo and I was I I stopped doing that. And again, because it involved a lot of breath. To like so yes, yeah, so I'm literally like making decisions. Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, oh, I, I made way more decisions than I realized actually. Um, and you know, I'm 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 happy with some of the decisions that I've made, but I think I learned from every show. So in my head, I'm like, okay, if I played the show and it wasn't great, but I learned something and someone once said to me something like, yeah, but you learned how to play another show and something really basic like that. And um, it kind of bummed me out for a minute to think of playing shows like in that way. But then I was like, it's actually fundamentally true. So this goes out to anyone that like doesn't have a lot of experience or feel like, oh, they haven't got it, you know, just keep playing shows because you have to play shows to get stuff out of them and it just informs the next show, for me anyway, and I'm sure for lots of people. And I haven't played that many. I mean, like, last year I got played to play, like, one show in Leeds. So, um, you know, I haven't played that many. And... Um, but the ones that I have played, I do want them to count. But that's tough when you are learning when you're playing. But I made that decision. I'm like, no, I'm just going to. So I tried the whole thing of like play shows, play shows. And I was like, this isn't good. Like, um, And then, yeah, so don't be afraid. I would say to anyone with chronic illness as well, like don't be afraid to just try things. And even if it doesn't, you know, work, you adapt and you learn and, um, but don't let it like stop you per se is what I would say. Like just find a way that you're comfortable and then do that. And that's basically what I did. I commend you for even being able to like muster up the energy to actually get out and do that. Um, I'm, I know like, you know, COVID and long COVID affects everyone differently, but it sounds like it hit you uh pretty hard i know that like sometimes even just like carrying like a laundry basket down the flight of stairs will just like wreck you for the next two days um and so i'm i'm actually like glad to hear that you're act you're able to get out there and and uh put yourself in like a live music situation it gives me a bit of hope um how long if i hope you don't mind me asking but how long has it been Yes, yeah, so it was like November 2020. Mm-hmm. It's when so, you first came down with it. Yeah, first came down with it and it was terrifying. So I'll just say quickly that obviously there's no vaccine then. And uh, I just carried on working and I was in a really stressful project at that time. And uh, I just carried on working. And I probably should have like taken time off and hindsight you know I would have done things differently and I think that impacted me for the next year the decisions that I made then so I was such a workaholic but then you know because of that happening and other things side therapy which changed my life forever so um there is a correlation I think between um you know mental health as well 
and the physical body because that's my experience of things that's how I've had to like I feel like no I'm not going to go into like any pseudo crap about it but I feel like there were two things that happened the long COVID physically like I was fainting in the shower and I was afraid to live by myself I just I was already living with my parents I moved back in with my parents basically is what happened caught COVID couldn't believe that because I was like hibernating never went out couldn't believe I caught it no one else got it then I was fainting in the shower and all kind it was just terrifying and um and then I relapsed like I must have got it again I lost all my taste for like nine months and smell much it that was the most depressing thing you know that weird i've forgotten the phenomenon of where your brain fills in when you think you're smelling stuff so you're like in the garden you think you can oh, yeah, smell yeah. flowers and you're like and you're like i thought and then you're like no my brain just filled that in so yes having that and you know when it happens for months you just get there's a depression that sinks in when you cannot taste food and you cannot smell so it was bleak i'm telling you like it was bleak and then when it, when it kind of changed and I got some weird taste back, everything smelled of um, nicotine as well. Like if I, um, yeah, so there was like weird, so the, the smell shifted and it, oh, it was just really weird. Um, and then since then, I've just like con been continuously catching it. <laughs> like I'm one of the people that are just going to keep getting it because some people will just keep getting it and some people actually won't it'll be surrounded by it and might not get it like there's just some think about that's a weird thing that's happening as well isn't there so um yeah so it's been like over two years and the symptoms have eased up so you know no more fainting or anything like that but I like I said I'm very regulated in what I do and I have to remind people all the time and then I just like thought you know what I'm not gonna I'd rather not socialize anymore because like like you know you tell people please don't hang out if you're really sick and stuff and then you know and then like I, I'll catch what they've got and I'm sick for like a month that wipes out all of my you know I still have to work I, I can't afford you know like to just, so I'm just like I feel like my life is hijacked for that time so what I've decided now is like, yeah, I'm just going to go out very sporadically. And for a time I was like socializing and going to shows and like mass and whatever, but I was still like, what's the word? It's because I had um, felt so lonely and wanted to feel connected. I wanted to be with people, but I did that and now I'm okay. <laughs> I'm connected now. <laughs> I'm back in my apartment. I'm like cool with just like not, you know, doing like I just couldn't. It's almost like I'm fronting at being a normal person. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to, I ain't fake like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's tough to take precautions. Um, I'm waiting. I, I like, you know, I'm not going to go out there and, and, and play a show or be in like a, um, an, a crowded indoor space. Uh, it's just, it just seems like it's too much risk. But I think maybe one of the last peer rave shows we played, 
we were actually we were able to play outside and like it took us to be like hey covid is is not over yeah it's august can we move this show outside please and they were like yeah it's actually a really good idea and it's like okay yeah. cool uh but now i'm i'm sort of kind of i'm feeling like i might not like i might have like a a window of time where i'm able to perform for people and it's like between may and october like because it could potentially be outside and winter will be like hibernation time or something like that that's a form of regulation though nick that you kind of like you're regulating your life in that way and i think everybody should be that like strategic Mm -hmm. i think yes it's it's really I'm sorry. It's uh, it's it's really interesting to see how these sort of regulations we're all having to put in place in reaction to, you know, the world being affected by a pandemic for the past two years. And I think I'm seeing another side of it because I work at UFO Factory, oh. and it, it was shocking when I came back to just seeing how, like I just did a party two weeks ago. It was like near capacity. And it's just, I'm just like, I can't fathom it anymore. Like I haven't gone to a rave and I don't know how long. And like, even in a space like UFO, which is probably like 250 people max. Like, Mm -hmm. I was like, this is, like, way too many people. Um, So it's, it's, and you had mentioned this before, like, how we have a tendency as people to forget. And it's like, I feel like this year in particular, like, 2022 into 2023, people are like, oh, like, we're, we're just back to, like, business as usual for real now. And it's like, well, I see this like chasm growing between people who are being intentional about the ways in which they move about their life and people who are just like, let's just forget. And it's like that it's not a sustainable situation (laughs) at all. So that so there is a long COVID support group that um, that I'm part of and it's specifically for artists and musicians and the, there's a common theme you know in that when over the, the years of years of, of having this support group of like um of discussing how do you navigate certain things now but with regards to what you just said like there is this fundamental difference between in in human behavior with those people that just want to get back to normality and the people that just never want to go back to normality and they're just in parallel and yeah so we were in the group we were just talking last week about finding the people that think the same as us because they are out there and just like just finding them and you know like connecting with those same people to even like i mean to even exist in physical spaces together 
in some instances because otherwise it's not going to happen. And like Nick, what you're saying, like it's just not going to happen. You know, like it's if it's winter, there are people that just not going to be able to share spaces in in this way. And so I do believe there are people out there who, so one, like we're not alone and people might feel like it's just them navigating this but there there's there are there's a lot going on there are a lot it might might be more hidden but i think it's just like access to information you have to work harder to get that access to information and to the people and i think that is a job in itself but it's worth doing and um yeah so there's so there's something about that and so i try and stay hopeful about that and I also like to stay hopeful in people because believe you me I felt like sometimes I was losing that which I did not think I was capable of losing which is like hope in mankind I genuinely thought like it has gone (laughs) it's not gonna come back you know so happened multiple times for me and I just think like no the world there are so many amazing people and unique, smart, intelligent, funny, like people. You just got to beat them out. You just got to find these people and stuff. So you got to find your crowd. And I think with long COVID, it's the same. Chronic illness, it's the same. And you got to you you got to do that. You know, make that effort to kind of seek it out, or you know, just got to keep persisting. And it's a shame that you, that involves work to do that so um yeah so that's kind of what you know in terms of what what you were saying like I do I do think I want to make that point like you you just got to rally around but there is definitely something about going to um just like pretty much anywhere and like I'm the only person wearing a mask on the train um I didn't wear an office I was in a huge open plan office today no one's wearing, there's one person out of like 100 wearing in terms of like all around the building, whatever. So it's not like busy and compacted, but I didn't wear a mask. And I thought I would normally, every little space I've been going, I've been wearing a mask. But I just made that decision not to wear a mask in the office. But if it was in a meeting room and it was like really small and stuff, then I would have made, it, made a different choice. But um, But I feel like when you go to shows, and there's something about ventilation, right? And a lot of the DRO spaces, they're not ventilated and um, pretty gnarly spaces anyway that gets used, you know, it's just how it is. So, but there's a real thing about ventilation and ventilation can make a massive difference. And um, I've just been saying to my um, residential group, like there's a, a residential Facebook group saying like, oh, by the way, when the, we have the walk around with the, owners can you can you raise this issue about ventilation because our apartments are connected through the kitchens and the bathrooms and you know stuff like that so there's government guidelines in england um i actually helped write some of the workplace stuff but it's only the workplace stuff that's public and i'm pushing to get access to information around residential properties because i think it's like there's not discussed there's not there's maybe there's no regulation i haven't actually done the homework on that so there's something about ventilation in diy spaces and like just saying to someone like 
do you mind if you just like leave that door open and like stuff small things like that can make a, a, a quite a big difference you know and uh, people don't understand like airflow and stuff like there's all this stuff like it's pretty basic stuff um but it's just disappointing that like go to shows now no one's wearing a mask like and someone will say like oh i noticed you were wearing a mask are you okay and, like i'm okay like <laughs> am i okay <laughs> like that's where it's at the consciousness is pretty much like something's wrong with you because you're wearing a mask now and no one else is so yeah so it's just like that's just always going to be there i feel like that will always be there. i really hate that dynamic where you know people are like oh like why are you wearing a mask i don't know it's it's such a strange new dynamic that's at play have you seen those um filter those box fans that attach to like the top of these filters, like the, the like furnace filters, they're like these cubes where you turn like a box fan pointing upwards on the top of this cube, and it's surrounded by these like high quality giant filters, and it's like you know a three by three by three foot cube that you plug in, and it like filters the air around you, and it's what? been shown to like really like help like I don't know make people feel safe in indoor situations like it does filter out a lot of potential like harmful uh like air uh what do you call them aerosols we were we were gonna play a show at ufo factory and we were gonna like build a couple of these and like keep <laughs> like the pure rave set up behind these like box fan filters mm. a way to like keep our performers safe so like yeah i i don't know i feel like we're gonna potentially another you know like Rather than like walking to gigs with like giant amplifiers, we're gonna be walking with our DIY air purifiers. Do it, Nick. Do it. It'll be sick. We'll have like punk stickers all over them. You know. Yeah, you gotta weird. incorporate it into the into the performance. You gotta normalize. Yeah. You know the the kind of gig you want to see, which I think is what doing DIY gigs has always been about, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting in light of this entire conversation, you know, it's like we've all been involved with this for quite some time. And it really is kind of alarming and shocking to me to realize like how little I actually knew about like what actually is like a safe space? What is a space that is inclusive? Like there's so much more that goes into it than just like not discriminating people based on who they are. You know, it's like, are you actually supporting that people feel safe and are in an environment if something happens that like they can be taken care of and like, you know, their health and well-being are a priority. And that will never align with like the capitalist demands of society yeah. or venues like and i just i just wonder like what is the solution or how do you work towards one because i'm trying to figure that out myself well people have power and it's the thing that we all know and when enough people shout it in the capitalist system that can result in the dollar having a different impact 
So it's just the rallying call for collective action. That's how I think that's one way of it, it taking place within that system. In terms of what you said about DIY and so, you know, about safe space, I have, I have a serious, I have bugbears about safe space. So like, uh, that has been a real phenomenon in England for me to navigate safe spaces and feel safe. And I am pretty run of the mill. Yeah, I'm a brown female, but that's pretty much, you know, in terms of like um, how I identify, it's pretty straightforward is what I'm saying. And I still come up against things where I'm like, I don't want to bring my voice to the table if you're asking me for it, but at the same time, you by default deprioritize me because I'm not a sub genre of a brown female that you want to prioritize. And I'm like, well, why don't you just ask the sub genre and this cut out everyone out? And so there's this thing about people trying with good intentions to, to um, you know, prioritize marginalized voices within the brown female space. I'm like, I'm pretty niche anyway in terms of DIY. So you want me to deprioritize my own voice for, um, you know, so anyway, I'm just saying like that's happened and I've opted not to contribute to feedback because I just thought I'm just, why, but, you know. And then similarly, in other spaces where um, when you mentioned, because we're talking about like, physical health being a part of safe spaces yeah so that I think like um there is definitely by default ableist culture anyway it just has to be it kind of needs to be gutted out that's my view on that because it's just always there by default it's this thing that that you're making assumptions and it just never gets around that and like I said earlier I'm only like, in terms of like how I'm impacting decisions I make, you know, I can opt not to go to stuff, but also like I choose to wear a mask and sometimes go to stuff, right? But there isn't like anything else that's really kind of stopping me by way of, yet I still feel like I don't fit in sometimes when I do participate. And so the whole thing is really flawed, really fundamentally flawed. And I do agree with you in terms of DIY, you incorporate and you make central what you want to bring. That's what it's all about. I genuinely feel like we all need to show up fully as ourselves. And I think that has to just be reminded as an ethos in, in the concept of DIY. Like, I just feel like some people forget, like maybe, I don't know if it's an age thing. I don't want to say that, but. I have noticed like asking people to play shows and they're like, um, what's the fee? And I'm like, yeah, I absolutely believe in paying artists. At the same time, I'm like, that's the first thing you said. And it's like, do you, you know, so yeah, so there's a different expectation and I embrace that. And I'm like adapting even to how I do stuff. And I think that is really important. Because I feel like I'm also like older generation, like hitting, you know, on the on the older end of the 30s now. So I definitely feel like there was a shift in the pandemic where I was like, 
oh, I'm actually supposed to like pass on knowledge <laughs> because there's some knowledge gaps, you know, like, and that is also a, a position that you have to actively take to share information and knowledge. And so that's something as well about the safe spaces and making them, there's something about, um, so the dynamic that's an issue for me is, do I take that responsibility on? And previously as being like a people pleaser and a fixer is a real issue for me because I would love to heal the world. <laughs> and I'm like, I cannot actually do that. So I just choose to um, be really intentional with what I do choose to act on. And believe me, people will know about when I've got something to say because, um, you know, I have kicked up a stink about things in the past. And um, I have started to listen to the Carve Sahidi <laughs> podcast right before this because I was like, and um, big mistake. But, you know, there's something about the telling truth as being more of a priority than upsetting people's feelings. That's my philosophy. I've always lived by it since I was young and I've just been that way. So it means that I have definitely ruffled feathers and I will continue to do that. So anyone listening will like, I've definitely like had to call out some real BS, pretty basic stuff. Definitely a race thing that's different in England than the US. I believe that the UK in the DIY scene needs to do its homework on race and race issues and the history of race in the UK. And it, feel, it still feels like now that I know people in England, part of the scene, who think that because they went to school with a black or brown person, they did their homework. That is where we are at, real talk in the UK. And that is just really where it's at. So in terms of like safe spaces and other things like that, yes, people work really hard and there's some really great people, but the trend is not really what I see. And that's where I feel like as the older person passing knowledge down, I really need to um, continue to use my voice to kind of raise attention to stuff that, um, I ha yeah, like I said, like I have to be intentional about what I choose to do, and I've sometimes decided not to act on everything. But then, what really upsets me is when I'm like, oh, but what if another brown person, brown woman, wanted to do experimental music and they see me being treated in this way, or you know, done X, Y, Z, and that's when I act because I'm like, it really bothers me, you know. Um, so yes, but I've seen some amazing people react when I have like said things and, um, you know, like ask for a chair, you know, or like, um, I was, I was repeatedly stopped in a venue in, in London and that the person that was like profiling me was East Asian. And there is this tension in terms of like Brown or East Asia, like being darker skinned, colorism is a thing. And there's so many different things that result in people treating people differently. And I just accepted that. But then I met like someone noticed something horrific happened to me. And then they just looked at me like, 
what you know and I was just like oh so used to it so then I because the way this woman was like so horrified I just mentioned it to a friend and they were like hey that's not cool and let me mention it and then like it got addressed and apparently there was a pattern and all this stuff but it gets addressed but I realized in that moment that I hadn't been speaking out previously therefore I was kind of complicit in a way because I wasn't speaking out and at that point I was like oh shit, I really actually have to take an active stance. And me being an alien existing in the world, meeting all these random people, like at some point I was like, oh no, you actually have to act and do stuff. And that for me was the turning point where I was like, oh, I really have to give feedback to people. I'm not like the average person. There are things happening to me, playing shows with Heath, he's a white male stuff happening where they're untreated differently and he wasn't or people giving him credit for stuff that I did and then like you know and all this you know just like do you know how to use a microphone and all this so um so yeah you know and so I have to just like pass that knowledge down to the people to make sure that it's not like the same and I'm hoping it won't be the same for people but I still feel like largely still the same shit yeah I feel that that is, uh, that's tough. We'll have to, um, I don't know. Well, it, I, I kept thinking like you have to DIY. Yeah. What was it? It's like, um, sort of like the be the change you want to see in the world, but I wanted to say like DIY the stuff you want to DIY in your DIY scene or whatever. I don't know. I couldn't figure it out really. How else are we going to like manifest these changes by, by, uh, but if we're not just going to practice what we preach here, so um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm also sorry to hear that you dealt with that, uh, especially that stalker situation. That sounds like really tough. Um, Thanks. That's, uh, that's really tough. Um, but yeah, um, I guess I, I also wanted to. Um, I, I, I do want to kind of like wrap this up, give you the rest of your evening back, and. Um, I unfortunately have to go back to work myself, but um, it was awesome to to chat with you. I guess I, I as like a good place to end on, like what are you working on now and what's the near future look like for you? So I'm working on a tiny little um, record with, um, not a record, but you know, I'm doing a release with um, this guy, Russell Walker, a white male who used to be in the pheromones, um, this band cool band and um so yeah so russell and i are doing something and uh i might um do some more stuff with uh, neil campbell who's um somebody in the uk is doing some cool stuff and i had a did do a release with him um last year we played the show together we had never played or even jammed before we just played the show um so yeah so the russell thing's happening and maybe with neil um and um i think that other than the show in, I'm playing Nottingham on Friday the 3rd of February, which is next week Friday. And then um, I do believe I've been booked to play Otto in July. Um, And otherwise, I'm just, like I said at the start of this, like I want to commit some time to recording or like taking a, a reprieve from the day job. And I think I need to like, I've talked about like going, coming even to Detroit for three months or something and like just chilling and like 
collecting some of my things and um and uh, maybe recording there but yeah so I definitely know that my body's needing a break proper break because my year used to be like at least three months of the year was like off um so yeah so so that and then um who knows what the future holds Nick because like you know I I pretty much live like date like the fact that I even have something now in the summer was like burning me like I definitely don't plan plan ahead and I have to respond sometimes day by day but largely like week or month by month and see how that goes so and I'm happy to like keep doing that but I'm gonna still um do more music and I've got loads of material like piles of books that I was like what is this stuff uh, so yeah watch this space nice awesome I can't wait to uh see what comes of it and uh yeah I mean keep living day to day take care of yourself and um you know prioritize health and uh hope to see you in Detroit. Uh I'm sure Brian and I will be here for sure. Yeah. If, um, you, if you come through, you gotta jam with us for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah, de- we'll definitely do that for sure. Yeah. I'm I'm still gonna represent Pure Rave in the UK though, right? So. Absolutely. Oh yeah. You're yeah. you are you are official affiliate. <laughs> <laughs> we'll okay. get you we'll get you all certified. Uh sounds cool. Yeah, of course. Well, Becky, great to chat. Thanks so much for joining us. You too. It's good to see you, Nick, and really good to meet you properly, Brian. (laughs) Yeah, likewise, Becky. It was a pleasure, and uh, I hope this is uh, the first of many conversations. I hope so. Take care, boo. Bye. Bye.